she lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. She does have a full draft, really, of um, what's to become Sense and Sensibility, what's to become Pride and Prejudice. The story of my father and his egg, the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg. I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s. So it could not possibly have been right. the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Welcome to History Gems, where today's episode is very different from our previous episodes. Just a prior warning that you may find some of the topics discussed in today's episode distressing. It is an extremely sensitive and upsetting topic in many ways. We are going to be talking about Nazi gold. Joining me today is Callum McKelvey, who works as the features editor on All About History magazine and has recently written a piece about Nazi gold. It has been found you know, that there's Merkur's mine and there's other examples of individuals finding gold showing up sort of decades later. It's not impossible. There's these fun stories and I can talk about James Bond and I can talk about Ian Fleming and um, divers and counterfeit notes and all the kind of boy's own adventure stuff. But on the whole, we are talking about stolen property and we are talking about the Holocaust. Callum studied history at university, completing a BA in 20th century and contemporary history and a master's in media history. During his studies, he spent a lot of time examining the culture of both Weimar and Nazi Germany, from cabaret to cinema. In his role as the features editor at All About History magazine, Callum likes to focus on both forgotten and unusual parts of history, and as well as Nazi gold, he's also written on subjects such as the history of the Soho bar scene. Welcome to History Gems, Callum. It's wonderful to have you with me today. And Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to today's episode because we're going to be talking about Nazi gold and... It's a topic that I'm really interested in, but one that I don't know anything about. So it's going to be a real learning curve, which is great. So I thought we could just start by perhaps you telling us a little bit about the Nazis and and how they came to power, um, if if that would be a good place to start. Yeah, of course. Um, So the Nazis kind of officially come to power in 1933. Um, and that's when Hitler takes the office of High Chancellor. Um, they're not voted in, as a lot of people um, seem to think. That's not what happens. Mm. Um, they kind of become in, they get into the sort of public consciousness uh, following defeat at the end of World War I. Um, the important background to this is that Germany's been left pretty humiliated. Um, so they've been forced to sign an armistice which contains uh, a war guilt clause and that lays sole blame for the conflict at their door. Um, and not only that, but because of the Treaty of Versailles, um, they that places particularly harsh punishments on Germany, and they have to pay reparations, um, kind of like compensation. And it's an amount which roughly equates to some $33 billion in today's money. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I think they only just paid it off a few years ago, though you'd, you'd have to check that. Okay. Um, so that was just one of those sort of, they were really, the Allies really went after them hard. 
Yeah. Um, and on top of this, land's taken and the army's crippled. Um, they, they're not allowed uh, a navy, they're not allowed all of the sorts of things, so it really sort of leaves them exposed and pretty humiliated. This is a, a country that's had an empire and that's all just taken. They're not allowed that. Um, because of the reparations in the early 20s, the economy so destabilised that there's hyperinflation and that results in mass poverty. There's stories of people needing a wheelbarrow to carry paper, paper notes simply to buy a loaf of bread. Um, so that's the sort of state that the country's in. Hitler's a young World War One veteran, and he feels particularly betrayed by this. Um, he's a nationalist, and what comes afterwards, the Weimar Republic, which is all about democracy and freedom of expression. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Weimar cabaret scene, and that's not something that Hitler was into, that he's against all of that. Okay. And he starts, he gets involved with the National Socialist German Workers' Party. And they have most of his sort of views. They're characterised by his nationalism and his anti-Semitism, which is another sort of key trait. Um, in 1923, he attempts to take control through a putsch, which is essentially a coup, uh, but this fails miserably. And Hitler's tried and sentenced to five years in prison, though he, he hardly serves a year. Uh, but what this does is it gets him a lot of popularity. So his defence speeches are printed in newspapers, and he develops a bit of a fan base. He's getting fan letters, um, if you can believe okay. it, in prison. <laughs> yeah, um, and he's allowed, he's allowed them, they're given to him. Um, and he uses the time to write the first volume of an autobiography, uh, which became known as Mein Kampf, uh, roughly translating as My, My Struggle. So he's released after, like, after just under a year and regains control of the Nazis. They try to take power legally um, and they do very well in elections, um, helped by a further economic crisis. And they go from 1928 to 1930, they go from uh, 0.8 million votes to 6.4 million. By 1932, they're losing votes though. And the sort of right conservative parties are getting concerned that there's going to be a sort of leftist takeover. So they pressure President Hindenburg into making Hitler High Chancellor, and they hope to use him to their own ends, which is obviously a massive mistake. Uh, as soon as he gets in, he starts to pressure people. Um, there's a fire at the Reichstag, which everyone now believes was started by the Nazis. Uh, the Reichstag is, of course, the German parliament building. And they blame that on the communists. And the result of this is that President Hindenburg then grants a decree of the Reich president for the protection of people and state, which basically limits the rights of the German people. Uh, there's no expression and it bans all political opponents of the Nazis. It's supposed to be an emergency act, but it stays in. Um, and it stays in until the Nazis are out. And following this, there's one final sort of key moment which is the Enabling Act, which Hitler sort of, he used the SA, who was kind of thugs, to stand outside the Reichstag building so that everyone who was going to vote would pass it, and that gave him uh, the right to make new laws without the consent of the Reichstag or the president. The result is that Hitler now has total, total control. So in terms of what we're terming Nazi gold, what... What are we actually talking about when we use that term Nazi gold? 
So essentially, Nazi gold is um, any gold which was taken by um, Nazi Germany from when they're in power, although it doesn't really begin until 1938, till the end of the war. One important thing to sort of just mention at this point is that they did take other stuff. So there's okay. a lot of stolen artworks, um, rubies, diamonds, any kind of national tre treasures. There's lots of paintings which have gone missing because of the Nazis. Um, but when we refer to Nazi gold, we, we are usually referring to simply to the gold they stole. I mean, so thinking about what it was that they actually took, I mean, how were they able to, to take this stuff? Well, they, they take it through two sort of distinct pathways. So the first is they're taking it from countries. And that's essentially as soon as they march in, they head straight for the central bank. Right. Um, the good thing about gold, in terms of if you want to steal it, um, is that it can be melted down and you can conceal its origins very easily. Um, and so they start in 1938 with Austria. They march into Austria. They take control of the central bank. And they need the gold, essentially, because at this point, Germany's maintaining a war machine. And war machines are expensive. Yeah. And you need things like high-grade steel and oil, neither of which Germany produces naturally. They have low-grade iron ores, so they can make weapons, guns, bullets, but they don't have the correct materials with which to construct tanks, bombs, etc. And the speed at which Nazi Germany is trying to take Europe they need this stuff quick. They can trade with the neutral countries, but they won't accept German money. Ah. They will accept gold. And so this policy of then, you know, marching into countries, taking the banks, taking the gold, melting it down, and then using sort of Swiss bankers to broker in the middle and sell to neutral countries such as Portugal, um, I think believe neutral Spain as well, um, Switzerland. There was you know, there were several involved. The other means is Aryanization, which is the forced expulsion of Jews from German businesses, um, and this involves primarily the transfer of property. But the most distressing way um, in which it was taken directly from individuals was that it was taken from victims of the Holocaust, um, and this can be literally anything. Uh, it can be things from their home. It can be artworks. Um, in terms of gold, um, any stocks and shares that are kept in gold, but mm -hmm. they will take literally anything. And sadly, when we get to the camps, this continues. Um, so people often talk a lot about um, that the personal items were taken, uh, wedding rings, gold spectacles, watches, and even teeth. Um, teeth? Gold yeah. teeth? So there was there were several dentists um, whose jobs were literally just to pull out gold teeth, um, and then this would be collected and melted down. The head um, Nazi dentist was a gentleman called Hermann Pook, and he was the dentist in charge of all of us at the camps. And he stated very very clearly, um, and I quote. No conservation or restorative treatment, only extractions, and with no anesthesis. No anesthesis. Sorry. So while people were alive, they were taking these gold teeth, or after they'd very sadly been killed? Um, I believe it was both. I believe it was oh. mostly before, 
but I know that they also extracted afterwards. When the Americans liberated Butchenwald, um, they discovered a cave adjoining it. And inside, uh, there's literally just crates and crates of items. And there's a really sort of chilling image of a soldier dipping both his hands into a crate. And it's almost overflowing with wedding rings. I mean, I mean, I just, I really struggle to get my head around this. And, you know, I did actually, I read a book at the beginning of the year called The Volunteer by Jack Fairweather. And it talks about the fact that these poor Jewish people were arriving at these camps and literally, you know, upon arrival, everything that they owned was was stripped from them. And I guess... I guess that that is what really happened, isn't it? That people they were they were literally being robbed on the spot. Even sort of broken spectacles were melted down. This particular gold was usually then stored in what were called Max Hellinger. Okay. Bank accounts. Oh right. And this was this was basically to hide what they were doing, um, because it it wasn't in the open; it was hidden. Um, and so Max Hellinger was a fake identity. They had these bank accounts and they would store the gold um, in them under his name. I believe as well by 1942, there's stories of the vaults literally being overflowing with Max Hellinger's gold. Um, so it, it's one of the sort of, it's the really unfortunate aspect, but it's the aspect that you can't get away from, mm. particularly when you're talking about sort of treasure hunters and ideas of, you know, where this gold has gone, because yeah. we're not just talking about national property. We're talking about personal property. Yeah. Um, right down to wedding rings and teeth. So it's one thing that you really can't get away from when discussing Nazi gold. No. And I mean, what I, what I can't get over is people were then, you know, clearly being... Yeah, robbed of everything they owned, you know, uh, very, um, very brazenly. But how did they manage to get hold of things like you talked about the fact that then the Nazis were were taking things like stocks and shares from Jews? So how were they able to to obtain those sorts of things? In 1938, the Jews were ordered to report all wealth over 5,000 Reichsmarks. Um and that then restricted access to their bank accounts. Um, wow. So there's, there's a real sort of immediate takeover of personal property. Um, and the firms were then Aryanized, and that meant that um, someone had to, uh, someone who's classed as an Aryan um, is then sort of paste, placed in control. Mm. Um, so they are, they are literally through law making people give over everything they own. Um, it is the complete takeover of personal property. And this is all directly to fund the war. So, but just to be clear then, so but this began in 1938, so this is the year before the war. Mm. So is this being done with a mind to, to war and the fact that war is, they know that war is coming at this point and just trying to prepare themselves? I mean, the Aryanization of, of businesses is part of um, Nazi Germany's expulsion of Jewish individuals from social and cultural life. They yeah. do not want 
any Jews. So the taking over of Jewish property, um, I, I would say safely that's more to do with kind of Aryanization as mm. opposed to necessarily the war effort. Right. It funds the war, um, but it's more to do with a complete kind of Aryan takeover. I think the march into Austria the same year when they then take the gold from the central banks, that's the, a direct funding of the war. Okay. And I think the two paths then very quickly um, collide. That There is very much the sense from sort of, you know, the mid-30s and probably even earlier, you know, we, we have um, ideas of, you know, from um, Mein Kampf of the way Hitler describes Germany. We know that he wants Germany to be on a war footing. We know he wants a takeover of Europe. Mm. Um, and so it must have been very much in their minds that as soon as they take these countries, they're going to, as I said earlier, the war machine has to keep moving and has to move fast. Yeah. Um, they have to take these countries before they can fight back. Um, and that's why they get all the way to Poland um, before, you know, Britain decides to then say, well, no, is enough is enough. Where all this gold is going um, and sort of the, the centre of the German economy is the Reichsbank. Okay. Um, and that's the German Central Bank. In Berlin? Uh, in Berlin, yes. Yeah. And in 1937, um, a law re-establishes this and basically puts Hitler in direct control, which is, like most areas in Nazi Germany, he keeps an eye on pretty much everything. Oh, right, uh, okay. But he, do, he does have a president underneath him. Um... First, that's a man, and I'm definitely going to butcher the pronunciation here, um, called Hjalmash Schacht, I think. Okay. Um, that's, I'm sure that's wrong, but someone's <laughs> right. He's better me. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, he's Hitler's money man, and he comes up with the idea of taking Austria's gold when they invade in 1938. But following him um, is a man appointed president in 1939, and he's called Walter Funk. He's he has kind of direct control of the economy under Hitler, and he's involved in a lot of discussions about the gold and how it's placed in bank accounts, um, and we know that he signed the Max Hellinger order, um, which allowed them to be you know to then be placed into the accounts, um, and even at the Nuremberg trials, um, the chief American prosecutor Robert Jackson labelled him the banker of gold teeth. Um, so he has a key role it's very uncomfortable isn't it talking about these these gold teeth and you know I can't get my head around that the fact that you know I mean it's one thing stealing someone's personal property that they might be wearing around their neck or something that's Mm. that's detachable but the idea of stealing you know a body part in all effects and whilst you're still alive, it's just uncomfortable isn't the right word, but it's just, it's so disturbing. And I just, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible that, that anybody would, would think to do that. And, and, and en masse as well, en masse, it's just, oh, it beggars belief. I think it was something that sort of came a lot came up a lot when I was doing my research is there is the side to this and I'm sure we'll get to this um shortly which is the the kind of myth side and the buried treasure and there's Nazi gold hidden here and there's Nazi gold hidden there 
and there's treasure hunters and there's all these kind of stories of where it's buried um and that that stuff has an element of kind of boy's own adventure to it we have people like buried treasure they like pirates i think sometimes within those stories people forget exactly what there is what it is that they're looking for mm. as you said it's it's body parts it's teeth it's wedding rings it's someone's memories and yeah sometimes the, those two sides particularly when doing the sort of research for the article it got slightly disturbing because i would read you know i'd, I'd be reading an article about some treasure i'd think oh i don't understand that i better go and look that up um and it would be something about um you know bush and and it would be really distressing and i'd see those pictures mm. and then i read you know a story about people diving for this sort of treasure and again written in this kind of boy's own adventure way and it just there's a slightly disturbing element to that and i do think it is important to remember that particularly when talking about nazi gold this isn't buried treasure this is someone's personal property um and it deserves to be returned um unfortunately some of it it has been a lot is still out there um we suspect we don't know exactly what they took um but there there was um a large amount returned which again i'm sure i will get to um shortly in terms of that are we talking about the fact that perhaps money was returned to individual countries or I don't was any of this property returned to Jew, Jewish families at all? I think it's very hard to know what is what, how to return it. Yeah. Um, so on the whole, I believe it was um, mostly returned through, uh, there was an organisation set up um, in 1945-46. Right. And this was called the Tripatriot Commission for the Restitution of Monetary Gold. Okay. Um, and it did what it says on the tin. Uh, their intention is was to redistribute the wealth um, among the, the, the economies of the various countries who laid claim to it. Um, and lots of gold was returned that way. Um, the hoard, which was found at Merkers Mine, um, that was given there. And the BIS received um, 3.7 tonnes of gold from the Reichsbank during the war and they handed that over to the commission. Wow. Um, That's all then handed out and it takes time. But in 1997, um, 5.5 metric tonnes, which would have been around $60 million, uh, was still held by the Tripatriot and 15 countries laid claim to this remaining amount. Um, What the kind of nice side of the story is is that instead of taking this gold themselves the countries donated their share to the nazi persecution relief fund which was an organization set up to assist holocaust survivors at the end of the day nazi gold is an incredibly depressing topic yeah Um, yeah. you are talking about stolen property yeah Um, but i do think it's nice and i think i said this in the article that for something which basically comes from greed and bloodshed um it is nice to see that it's, you know, there's this kind of moment of other countries saying, no, we don't need it, you know. Yeah, Give, give it to the victims. And the, you talked then, or you mentioned a hoard. Um, what, what was that? So right at the end of the war, um, yeah. on the 3rd of February, 1945, 
um, Berlin's being bombed and one of the bombs hits the Reichsbank and Walter Funk, the president, decides that he has to have the majority of the gold reserves, um, $238 million roughly, um, hidden. He has to get it away. And there's a mine um, 200 miles southwest of Berlin near Frankfurt called Merkers Mine. And this is an old salt mine. Oh, okay. Um, which has sort of vaults within it so they, they can hide it there. Mm. Um, in April, the American military is going in and they become aware of this. Um, they hear rumours, but they don't really know what they're going to find. They enter the mine and they blow a hole into the sealed vault. And I think they found over $2 million worth um, of stolen gold. Not oh, to mention yeah. artworks, paintings, and the pictures from this are, are incredible. There is just hordes and hordes. And all of that was then sort of turned over to the um, to the Tripatriot Commission. Um, so that was a huge chunk, which was then given directly to them. So uh, there are pictures, the pictures of it? Oh, yeah, there's, there's loads of pictures um, oh. of the just... There's one in particular where um, it's just kind of a long shot of the cavern. Okay. And there's all these sort of um, crates with little bundles in them. And that's all gold. Wow. That's all gold bars. Um, but there's lots of stories, particularly at the end of the war, how they were hiding the gold, how they were getting rid of it. And that's where the kind of myths, the legends, and the sort of other side of it comes in, the more kind of treasure huntery conspiracy side. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about that. Tell us a bit about that and the and the myths that are surrounding Nazi gold. I mean, this is this is kind of what the article focused on, and mm. this is the stuff that um, I could talk about all day because there's so many <laughs> really <laughs> random stories. Um, so I'm probably just going to kind of jump in with a couple of different ones. Just go for it, yeah. Uh, one of my sort of favourites. Um, I'm a bit of a James Bond fan. Me too. <laughs> um, and he he mentions Nazi gold a lot. Um, Ian Fleming mentions it in the book On a Majesty's Secret Service. I think it crops up again in Octopussy and obviously Goldfinger. Um, there's mentions in there. But Ian Fleming himself, who then went on to write all the books, um, he became interested in um, a particular mystery called... Uh, Rommel's gold. Okay. Um, and this is named after uh, General Erwin Wommel, um, who's the nicknamed the Desert Fox, and he was the Nazi commander on the North African front. Um, he didn't have a direct involvement in this, uh, but because it was um, taken from Tunisia, this is kind of where the sort of you know, the nickname Rommel's gold comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story goes that. Uh, the Jewish community in Tunisia was occupied by the Nazi forces during the war, and in January of 1943, SS Colonel Walter Rauf summoned a collection of rabbis and religious leaders and offered to spare their communities for 60 hundredweight of gold to be, delivered in, to be delivered in 48 hours. Which is a pretty, like, that's a big task. That's a big thing to do. Massive, yeah, yeah. They achieved this, um, and the gold arrived five days later at the port of Stax. Um, it was then taken to Naples, but due to Allied bombing and political instability, it could not go on to Berlin. And so a plan was hatched. Uh, 
On the Corsican coast, a diver named Peter Fleeg was hired and instructed to dive down into a particularly unusual rock formation, and he was to secure the crates underwater and mark their position with four weighted buoys. Um, this was never recovered, and Fleek himself has gone back several times after the war, making dives to try and find the loot. He's never found it. Um, so there's a lot of stories of people diving off the Corsican coast, yeah. which is mentioned in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that's how Fleming becomes interested in it. Um, okay. He becomes aware of this because uh, he worked in naval intelligence during the war. All right. He was very much a kind of desk spy. And he got um, the 30 AU commandos to raid Tambach Castle. And inside, the German troops were in the process of burning the entirety of their naval archives, um, dating right back to 1870. And these commandos were able to capture this. They ended up chartering a fishing boat to get all the papers back. Um, and that was where... Fleming happened across a mention of a vast sort of shipment of stolen gold. Um, he himself tried to actually finance an expedition. Uh, Fleming wanted to go diving, he wanted to try and find it, but um, he couldn't finance it, and so he ended up just mentioning it in a load of books instead. Another one which came up a lot, which is quite interesting, um, is Lake Toplitz. So... Hi. This is high in the Austrian Alps. This was rumoured to be the site of a hoard of some 5.6 billion in gold. Whoa. Um, sunk in the lake. On uh, purpose? Supposedly. Obviously, we're kind of talking in the area of, um, of myths and legends now. Yeah, um, sure. I think this one gets a little bit more traction. Okay. Because whilst they didn't find gold, yeah, they did find... Um, a lot of, I believe, 700 million worth of counterfeit currency. Really? So this was as part of an operation. Um, I believe it was called Operation Bernhard. And the plan was to cripple the British economy. Right. Using counterfeit notes um, produced by inmates at concentration camps. Okay, right. So these were trained to make fake money mm. and this would then be circulated and cripple the British economy. Um, and they mm. turned up in circulation right into the 50s. <gasps> um, Goodness. We don't know exactly why, but the majority ended up at the bottom of Lake Toplitz. And right. in 1959, 700 million worth were, were found. Um, and I think the latest dive found 2,000 more examples um, but as yet, none of the expeditions have ever uncovered any gold. One particular legend um, is a train buried somewhere in a mountain in Poland. Um, and it's supposed to be loaded not just with gold, but um, art jewels, but up to 300 tonnes of, of stolen gold. Mm. And these treasure hunters believe they'd found it uh, buried deep within a mountain. And in return for 10% of the combined wealth, um, should it be found, they would reveal the location, uh, which they did. And whilst tunnels were found, um, there was no indication of a train being there. And okay. um, I believe they used sort of um, 
sonar or some um, ground penetrating radar that was it to sort of see what was in these tunnels um but in 2018 the two sort of parted ways they went there they went their separate ways and said that they weren't gonna work together anymore but one of them richter um said of the train that he's still 95 percent sure that it exists so he thinks he's found this um and it's out there somewhere there there was in december 2020 um, recently then yep very recently uh butchenwald concentration camp was forced to issue a statement um asking treasure hunters to stay away because a documentary had stated that treasure could still be there um oh and they had to then say that you know please this is um this is a memorial site this is a concentration yeah. camp um don't break in don't come looking for this um and that's kind of yeah as i said earlier you can't get away from the sad side no and sadly we do have treasure hunters going and looking at concentration camps um for gold is is the fact that there is this sort of fascination as you were saying with nazi gold and the fact that people were um you know uh, kind of obsessed with finding nazi gold is that i mean is it because of kind of the myth around it and the fact that the Nazis were, I'm guessing, obviously quite secretive about all this? Well, you, you mentioned that the fact that the Nazis were quite secretive about all this gold that they were accumulating. Is that one of the reasons why you think perhaps it appeals to treasure hunters a bit more because of this kind of, yeah, this kind of myth surrounding it and, and perhaps where it's come from? I think, you know, World War II has had such a vast impact, um, particularly in Europe, on our society today. We can't really escape it. People always talk about there being war movies on Unboxing Day. um, And there is this obsession. I think there is, A, just people love gold. There is an obsession for gold. Mm pirates again before it was pirates now it was nazis they're our kind of modern equivalent for the war that's where we go yeah but i do think the secrecy element plays into it um and definitely it, it has been found you know that there's Merkur's mine and there's other examples of individuals finding gold it, it's showing up sort of decades later it's not impossible yeah it's not fantasy it, it could happen there's these fun stories and I can talk about James Bond and I can talk about Ian Fleming and um, divers and counterfeit notes and all the kind of boys own adventure stuff. But on the whole, we are talking about stolen property and we are talking about the Holocaust. It's a very, it's a very uncomfortable subject and it's desperately, desperately sad and tragic and unreal really that people are capable of of committing theft in this way um but it's been a real eye-opener and very very interesting um even though yeah the subject matter isn't particularly pleasant so thank you very very much callum for your time it's been extremely enlightening and very interesting so thank you for sharing your expertise with us Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. 
You can order or subscribe to All About History magazine at www.magazinesdirect.com, but you can also find the magazine in supermarkets and WH Smiths. You can also find them on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating and a review. Join us soon for the next episode of History Gems.